You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, well, good morning again, Creekside. Merry Christmas. It's beginning to look a lot more like Christmas around here. Uh, If it's your first time with us, welcome. So glad to have you with us this morning. And we'd love to give you a free gift if it's your first time with us, a tumbler or a sippy cup or a water bottle, and that's our gift to you. If it's your first time with us this morning, you'd like more information about our church or there's something we can be praying about for you, there should be a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. So how many of you like to wait? It's a dumb question to start a sermon with, isn't it? No one likes to wait. Waiting in lines, waiting in traffic, waiting for someone to speak. How many of you are uncomfortable with long pauses in conversations? That was uncomfortable, wasn't it? It was five seconds. Probably felt like an eternity. Jeff, say something. It's hard to wait. And we are incurable waiters. We wait for things to happen, and we, when they come, we can't wait for them to be over. You notice that with, with the holidays? I, I hear people right now, like, I can't wait for Christmas. I can't wait to recharge and refresh. It's going to be great, and I know what's going to happen in two weeks. I can't wait for Christmas to be over. I'm out of my routine. I've eaten too much. I'm just, right? We, we always wait Waiting is a kind of suffering. In fact, the English word patience comes from the Latin patio, which means to suffer. What do we call someone in a hospital? A patient. What do patients do? They wait. They wait. They wait for the diagnosis. They wait for the test results. They wait for healing. What does a hospital chaplain do? They help people wait. James knows that it's hard for us to wait. He wants to help us. He helps us this morning, and he says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Last week, we looked at this coming judgment of Jesus And James says that on the day of Christ's return, the wicked rich will be judged. James targets these people, the the wealthy landowners in his society who would hoard their wealth, who would exploit their workers, who ignored the plight of the poor. And James says judgment is coming. In fact, on the day of Christ's return, this great reversal is going to take place between the haves and the have-nots. And when we appear on that day, what we will find is that many of the haves of this world don't have Christ. And we'll find out, and they will as well, that they don't have anything. And we'll also learn that many of the have-nots in this world have Christ, and they and we will discover that they have everything. That's the reversal that's coming. And James says, take heart, oppressed brothers and sisters. On that day, those you envy will envy you. In light of what's coming, take heart, be patient, wait. That's James' point in this 
passage. He uses patience four times, steadfastness twice, endurance, patience, waiting. That's the message, wait. And right now, I'm confident all of you are waiting for something. Some of you are in that oppressive work environment and you're waiting to get out. Some of you are dealing with chronic sickness or illness or an estrangement that won't seem to get resolved and you are longing for some kind of resolution or tension from the tension. And James tells us why we're always waiting. We're always waiting because things haven't been fixed. Things haven't been resolved. Things haven't been rectified. Things haven't been healed. And they won't be until Christ returns. So wait. Why do we need to be told to wait? You ever thought about that? That's a weird command, isn't it? Do you like being told to wait? You're already waiting. You have been standing in a line. Now remember, wait. Yes. What choice do I have? So, so why would James tell us to wait? What other choice do we have? Well, here's why. Because James says it's not just about waiting as Christians. It's about waiting well. What does it mean to wait well? It means we wait for the right thing. We wait for it in the right way. That's the Christian virtue of patience. And in this passage, James fills out what it means for us to wait well. Patience, to fill it out, is focused, forbearing, faithful. If you're going to live the Christian life faithfully, you have to stay focused even when you can't control outcomes. You have to show forbearance even when people can't seem to change and we can't seem to change them. And it means we have to stay faithful even when we can't comprehend our Problems. I heard one pastor say it like this, on this side of eternity, your circumstances will feel uncontrollable, people will seem unchangeable, problems will seem unexplainable. That's not abnormal, that's the normal Christian life. And that's enough, if we're honest, to make anyone quit. Quit. And the reason that I think many people throw in the towel on Christianity is because they picked the wrong finish line. They were looking for a resolution before this resolution. And so we need to learn to wait for the right finish line and run to that point. That's what James helps us to do. We need God's help. Let's ask for it now, and then let's look at each of these points. So God, I ask that you would teach us from your word by your spirit and that you would help me to do and help us to do what is so uncomfortable and unnatural, and that is to wait on you. Jesus, show us what is true, that you are worth the wait. For your sake, amen. So what does waiting well look like as a Christian? First thing is this, it means staying focused, continuing to serve the Lord, even when we don't see the outcome of our labor. Staying focused on serving the Lord, even when we don't see the, the outcome of our labor. James uses three examples of waiting in this passage, and the first is a farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. James says that being a Christian is being a farmer. Farmers wait. Now, here's a question. Are farmers passive while they wait? You're passive right now. 
and I'm waiting, and it's uncomfortable. No, they work as hard as anyone works. They're plowing, they're sowing, they're weeding, they're tending, they're laboring, and yet they know they can't produce a harvest. They have to wait, and specifically, they have to wait on the rain. And not just any rain, it's the early rain and the late rain. See, in Palestine, think of these farmers, and this is who James has in mind. They have very few resources. They don't even own their land. They have precious little seed. They have this rented lot that they're cultivating to live on. They're working it all the time, but to get food off of that land, they need one rain in November. That's the early rain. They need another rain in April, the late rain. That's the seed germinating, the early rain, and then the seed coming to bloom, the late rain. And here's what's interesting about rain in Palestine. The vast majority of the rain happened in December. So even if it dumped rain in December, if you didn't get the rain at the right time, here and here, you wouldn't get a harvest. And so these farmers are waiting while they're working, totally dependent on something beyond their control to see the harvest. This image would have been poignant to James' hearers because in the Old Testament, God promises to bless his people, not just with rain, but you know what? The early rain, the late rain. If you're faithful to me, I will give you a harvest in the time you need it. This would have been in James' reader's mind. It's a picture of God's reward in God's timing. And James says, when we labor for the Lord, we need to think like farmers. Think like a farmer. Verse 8, you also, family of God, be patient, establish your hearts. Don't doubt, don't turn away. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grow weary because Jesus will return and his return is at hand. What does that mean? What on earth does it mean that the return of the Lord is at hand? Because let's be honest, at face value, what does that sound like James is saying? Hey, just a little bit longer, Jesus is going to return in like 30 minutes. So just stay faithful just a little bit longer, and he'll be right back. Now, if that's what James means, that's cold comfort for us, isn't it? Because Christ didn't return in his lifetime. Christ hasn't yet returned in our lifetimes 2,000 years later. So what on earth does it mean that the, the return of the Lord is at hand? There's this popular idea that the New Testament writers initially believed that Jesus would return within their generation and, and that they assumed that and then when he didn't, they sort of had to revise their timeline and say, okay, it's going to be later. And some assume that, that James is actually mistaken in saying this. But I think that's a complete misunderstanding of the New Testament because the point of Jesus being at hand has to do not with how soon in terms of days or hours Jesus will return, it has to do with where we find ourselves in the biblical story. Let me, let me ask you a question. Do you know how to know if you're in the last days? Right? People say, we're in the last days. Do you know how to know if you're in the last days? People are saying to me, like, Jeff, it's COVID. This is the last days. This is it, man. Do you know how we know we're in the last days? Because Jesus came to earth to die and rise for our sins. That's how we know we're in the last days. Because the coming of Christ to earth inaugurated the last chapter in God's redemptive story. 
That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 says that in the past, God has spoken in many ways at many times, but in these, you know the phrase he uses, in these last days, he's spoken to us through Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that it is to the church upon whom the end of the ages has come. Here's the point. We are in the final chapter of God's story, right? For, For Abraham, As he's sojourning, he's looking for the time God's going to give land. And then Abraham's seed becomes a nation, and they're looking for that land. And then they get in the land, and they realize it's not the end of the story. And now they need a king, and they're looking for the king. And then they get the king, but the king isn't good enough. They need a better king. And so now they're looking for that king, and then the kingdom's divided. And how is God going to restore that? And then not only are they divided, then they go to exile. And now they're looking ahead. How is God going to bring us back from exile and unite us under a king and restore his presence? And you're looking forward, looking forward, looking forward until you get to who? To Jesus, and everything is fulfilled in Him. Every promise of God is yes in Jesus. And here's what that means, family. There is nothing else to look forward to but what? The return of Christ. So we should live with an expectation that Christ could return at any moment, and that is the next thing on God's timetable. That is the expectation that we live with. That's why we're in the last days, not because of COVID, okay? We don't know how long, but we know what the next chapter is, and we live with that ending in mind. Here's what that means practically. We work, we labor. When does the rain come? The rain doesn't come until Jesus comes back. Here's what that means for evaluating the fruitfulness of our lives. You don't know how fruitful your life is until when? Until Jesus returns. You don't know what your labor has accomplished until he comes back. And I think a problem, a reason for discouragement as Christians is that we want to see the harvest before the harvest. Don't we? You reach out to someone, hey, you want to hear about Jesus? No. (laughs) Can we meet and read the Bible? No. Not interested. You invest in someone. They're not interested in Jesus. You, you do these things. You serve people. You do good. You don't seem to get traction. You don't see justice enact, enacted, and, and you give up. Paul says you've got to be a farmer. You're, you're judging the harvest before the rain. Wait for the rain. You know, Paul lived this way. If there were ever a Christian in the history of the church who should have evaluated his ministry prematurely, who is it? It's Paul. Paul was fruitful, wasn't he? He's planting churches all over the Mediterranean world. And you know what I would have done if I was Paul? I would have stopped at some point and done this. This is amazing. I'm great. And did you know Paul wouldn't even judge the effectiveness of his ministry? He says in 1 Corinthians 4, I can't evaluate myself. Only the Lord can. That's why he goes on in 1 Corinthians 4 to say this, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. We don't know what our lives produce until the end. So don't quit prematurely. You haven't seen the outcome. You haven't seen the outcome of your labor and the prayers you prayed and the deposits you made and the words you spoke and the deeds you did. 
Don't wait for someone else to say you're doing a good job. Don't live for other people's commendation. Wait. Because James says the fruit you will get on that day is precious. Precious fruit. I don't see fruit as precious. Do you? There's just so much of it, right? Just filter, you know, it's like I'm convincing, trying to convince my kids all the time, eat the, right? Like a farmer sees fruit as precious, doesn't he? Doesn't she? Why? Because they went through the whole process of waiting and working and they see the outcome and what they did and what God did to bring it about. So if you're discouraged this morning in ministry, remember the evaluation of your life hasn't happened yet. You've got to wait. Do not quit early because you don't know what your life's producing yet. So waiting well means staying focused even when we don't Control the outcomes, even when we can't see them. Second, it means forbearing with people who are difficult to deal with, and that's all of us. James goes on to say this, do not grumble against one another, brothers, sisters. Now, this is a passage about patience, right? What does patience have to do with grumbling against other people? Everything. Because have you ever noticed that when you are waiting for something, you get what? Irritated. And who do you take your irritation out on? The people closest to you. And you know this because you've been in a car. And anyone who has ever been in a car knows this, right? Because you're on a family trip and you're driving somewhere. And you can't get there yet. And it's no one's fault that you can't get there yet. It's just how it is. And yet, what do your kids ask? Are we there yet? Which is the worst question. Clearly, we are not. And somehow, mysteriously, whose fault is it that we are not there yet? Mine. I have failed in some way, and that is why we are not, in fact, there yet. So when are we there yet? Are we there yet? And it's just like, never. We are never going to get there. We're not going to make it. What, what is happening in that moment? Everyone is irritated over something they can't control, and they need someone to blame for their frustration. And so they channel that frustration toward the people closest to them. This is something that is endemic to the human condition. We are all waiting. There is some longing, some frustration. There is something that hasn't been made right and our temptation in that moment is to get irritated with each other. You see this with the children of Israel. They get out in the wilderness, and life's hard because they're in the wilderness, and they have to trust God. And what do they do? They grumble. And now they're like, it's got to be someone's fault. Moses, you parted the Red Sea to kill us, Moses, right? You did all this stuff and brought us out here so that we would die. This is the natural human condition is that we grumble against each other when there's external pressure and hardship. And this is what's happening in James' own church. We see this is a church where people hate each other. They're tearing each other down with relentless criticism. They're slandering. They're maligning. They're saying, you know, the problem is I should be leading the church, not that guy. And that guy's saying the problem is that person. And if I had control, everything would work out. And there's constant power grabbing. And it's not like this happens anymore, right? 
It's not like during COVID, Christians have been tearing each other down for the problems in the church, right? I don't, this is, you know. But, but no, when there is hardship, it is so easy to direct that, not in a constructive way, but in a destructive way, not to speak the truth in love and rebuke, but just to harbor ill will and resentment toward other believers. And that's what's happening in this church. They're under legitimate hardship, but they're taking it out on each other. What does James say? Don't grumble so that what? You may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. See, the judgment of Christ is a comforting thing because he will make everything wrong right, but it's also a sobering thing because he will judge his people. Not for salvation, but for rewards. He will assess the quality of our work. Here's what's even more sobering, family. Christ already sits as judge over the earth. He already reigns, and do you know where he exercises his reign as judge now on the earth? Who does God judge and discipline now in this age? Us. Christ is already operating in his judicial capacity for his people. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter, judgment begins with who? The household of God. See, God doesn't discipline other people's kids, but he does discipline us. Christ already disciplines his people. And I think this is the point that James is making. It's the same point that, that Jesus makes in Matthew 7. Judge not, lest ye be judged. The point is this, not never evaluate anyone or assess their behavior. That's, that's not what Jesus or James is saying. It's this, that when we hold people guilty until proven innocent, when we harbor bitterness and resentment in our heart, when we make people come to an impossible standard before we will approve of them or be kind to them, when we are hard in our judgments against others, then God makes our way hard. God will bring hardship and discipline into our lives to teach us to be charitable, to be merciful as he is merciful toward us. The point is this, we need to learn to be forbearing with people because people take a long time to change. Has it taken you a long time to change? It's taken me a long time to change. Like, if you ask my wife, don't. 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 But if you ask my wife where I need to change, I actually know what she would say already in the areas that I can grow because I haven't grown in them as much as I'd like. It takes a long time to change. Now, you might say, Jeff, is forbearing just putting up with anything? Well, no, because this is example number two. What does he say? As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Did the prophets say hard things to God's people? They said the hardest things to God's people. They said, you've been walking in disobedience for hundreds of years. You've turned against God's law. You've oppressed your neighbor. God will judge you. Repent. But do you know what they didn't do? They didn't stop speaking to God's people. They didn't stop following God's purposes for them, and they forbeared and stuck with God's plan even when people weren't changing. Isaiah, 60 years of speaking to God's people, no repentance. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You don't want to be a prophet. It's pleading with an obstinate people to come back and saying, the reason I'm pleading is because you are God's people and he will not let you go and he will not let this just continue. He will not be mocked. He's going to get you, so please repent. 
It's a lot harder to live this way, to forbear with a people and speak truth to people while not giving up on those people because God does not give up on those people. That's, that's the kind of life we are called to together because that's how God acts towards us, calling us back, calling us back to repentance again and again and again. So this isn't saying put up with anything. This isn't saying just tolerate injustice. It's saying, no, within the people of God, we need to learn to speak truth in love and forbear and stick with and pray that God will intervene and change people because we're going to be in situation after situation where people just seem impossible to deal with. And frankly, I'm impossible to deal with sometimes too. Here, here's an application question to ask yourself. You know, when you're frustrated with people, I try to ask myself with anger directed toward people, how much of it is them? How much of it is something going on inside of me? Because what I've found is oftentimes the discontentment, dissatisfaction, and frustration within me gets taken out on who? The people closest to me. You ever notice how anger can be a secondary emotion too? It can be legitimate, but also if we let it go unchecked, our anger can have bad aim. Here's what I mean. Okay. I treat my kids differently when they spill milk. I've used this example before. It's contingent on whether or not the Warriors win. Right? After a blowout, whoo, championship, we're back. Oh, honey, you spilled your milk. Oh, whoops, let me clean that up, right? No big deal. Warriors get a trap game against the Spurs, maybe. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there as an example. I can't believe. And then it's spilled milk. You, you disobedient child, right? This is a sin issue in your life. Right? Nothing changed except me. And often I find when I'm really critical and frustrated toward people around me, it's because there's a genuine longing for something to be made right. But they're the closest people and they become collateral in my own frustration. Does that make sense? The longing is right, but it's a longing for the return of Christ. I have to learn to direct my complaint to God in that situation and not let other people be collateral. So focused, forbearing. Finally, faithful, even when there are problems we can't comprehend. The truth is this, it's incredibly sobering, and I say it because I love you, and I want you to walk through suffering well. The seasoned saints in this room know this already. But there will come a time as a Christian where you suffer something, and you don't understand why you're suffering. If you're young, trust me, this will happen. And there will be a hardship that shakes you to the core And you will not understand what God is doing. And when you go to him for answers, he will seem silent. And that is a crux point for your walk with Jesus, what you do next. And James wants to prepare us for that. Because the reality is this, the answers to our deepest questions don't get fully answered until the end of the story. And we're not there yet. 
And so we need to learn to be faithful even when there are problems that we can't put back together. Farmer, the prophet, final example James gives is the righteous sufferer, and that's Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job is the ultimate Old Testament sufferer, righteous sufferer. Right, a lot of people have a problem with the story of Job, and that's actually the point. <laughs> it's supposed to unsettle us and prepare us for how hard life can be because Job is the guy who seems to bat a thousand. He seems to get it all right. He, he does justice. He does good, and he experiences unimaginable evil. That's chapters one and two. And then for the vast majority of the book, these three friends offer him really good-sounding theology to fix his problems. And in most cases, their theology would seem to line up, but it doesn't work for Job. It doesn't, it doesn't fit all the pieces together. And Job keeps going, nope, that's not my situation. Nope, that can't be what God's doing. Nope, nope, nope. And the temptation for Job is what? It's what his wife says in chapter 2. Why do you care about God anymore? Curse God and die. <laughs> Job 2.9, one of the most memorable verses in the Bible. Don't make that your life verse, okay? Curse God and die. That's the temptation for Job, is to renounce his covenant with the Lord because he says, God, you forsook me. I'm off the hook. I don't have to follow you anymore. And I think that temptation for Job to break his vow to the Lord explains what comes next in chapter 12. I'm sorry, verse 12. James says this, remember Job? And then he says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. What's the temptation when you're in suffering? To renounce God. I don't get it. God, I'm done with you. God says, James says, don't make a rash decision when you're in suffering. Don't believe that this is the end of the story. James, of course, here is just echoing his older brother, right? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? This is what remember? Remember what he says? But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Here's the deal. Uh, vows are a big deal in the Bible. The Old Testament's clear. If you make a vow to the Lord, you'd better keep it. That's why marriage vows are a big deal. Because you're not just making them to each other. Who are you making them to? God which should put a holy terror in you, right? That this isn't just about my relationship with that person. It's about God, and we make them to God because ultimately we trust that, God, you're going to have to sustain the covenant, not me, not him, not her, but you. V vows are a scary thing, and, and so our temptation is, and our covenant with God is to hedge our bets and find an escape hatch. Find an escape clause. People did this in Jesus' day in this way. They went, you know, vows are important, but not all vows are created equal. I mean, maybe I could get out of some of my vows, and it all depends on the vow. And they would they'd say, well, you know, if I swear by heaven, that's a big deal. I got to keep that vow. 
But if I swear by earth, maybe I can get out of it. And if I swear by my head, then I can really get out of it, right? And so they had this elaborate system of vows. Basically, they wanted an escape clause when things got hard, right? It's like, geez, man, I knew I would help you with your car, but I swore by the hair on my head, not by heaven, so can't help you this weekend, right? That was the temptation. That's the temptation for Job, right? Find some escape clause to his covenant with God. That's the temptation for James readers too. Life is hard. I don't understand why I want out. And now I'm going to do something rash. That's the temptation for all of us. Now, here's how I think this plays out today. Have you ever said to God, hey, God, if you do this, I promise I will follow you. If you answer this prayer, if you give me this thing, then I will commit my life to you. Now, I think a lot of people don't say that explicitly, but that is the implicit bargain you make in your heart. All of us are tempted to make a gamble with God where we know he has good things for us, and we assume, well, if I do X, Y, and Z and hold up my end of the bargain, God will hold up his, right? And then we assume that we get to define what it means for God to uphold his end of the bargain. That God will give me X, Y, and Z because I've done what God wants and now he'll give me what I want. You know, I, I've noticed it's interesting. I don't hear as many preachers giving the straight prosperity gospel anymore. You know the prosperity gospel, right? Like if you give God money, he'll give you mansions and cars and health and wealth and all that. I don't hear that as much, right? Because I think people have realized it doesn't work. Um, in fact, it could only work in America. That's kind of the irony of it. I hear a new kind of prosperity. It's like the prosperity gospel for millennials, okay? And this is what it sounds like, right? If you commit to God, he will give you favor. And favor, it's not health and wealth and cars and that kind of stuff. It, it means you get to live your best life. It means you have emotional wellness. It means your life is fulfilling and satisfying and you self-actualize and you hit your goals and you hustle and grind and, and that's the abundant life Jesus has for you. It's basically success on whatever terms you define it as. And that's just as dangerous as the old prosperity gospel. <laughs> because ultimately the Christian life isn't about what me, me getting what I want in my life, it's about God getting what he wants in my life. And Jesus doesn't promise my definition of the best life. In fact, he says, if you follow me, you're following a crucified Savior. Where am I following Jesus to? To some kind of crucifixion. Something in my life needs to die, and I don't become like Jesus until I share in the fellowship of what? His suffering. Jesus was righteous, and he suffered. Do you realize how sobering that is for the Christian life? It means if you're following the steps of Jesus, you are going to be righteous and suffer. And it won't be clear how those two things go together. And in that moment, you'll have to ask yourself, am I following Jesus because of who Jesus is? are because of a bargain I made with Jesus for what I thought he would give me if I did. Because I have seen too many people apostatize. 
because they made that bargain with Jesus. That I'd get this spouse or this job or this thing or this success and clearly Jesus was leading me on this direction and then he didn't come through on the area. I knew he was leading me and so I'm done. Don't be deceived. We need to prepare ourselves for suffering. And the only comfort we can take is not that we have all the answers. We have to trust in the character of God. That's why James ends this way. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is what? Compassionate and merciful. Literally, James says, you have seen the outcome of the Lord. He's saying, remember the end of the story for Job. Here's the amazing thing about Job. He spends 30 plus chapters mad at God. He complains at God. He argues with God. He says, I need my day in court with God. I challenge you, God. I question you, God. Do you know what he doesn't do? Curse God. In fact, he keeps coming back to God, grappling with God, and what does God give him his day in court? God meets Job in the whirlwind. And what's amazing is Job doesn't even get the answer, but he gets God's presence. And the magnitude of God's presence and greatness and grandeur is enough to say, I'm so glad that I worship a God beyond my comprehension. Because only a God beyond my comprehension can have reasons for things that I don't understand. That's the kind of God I need. And ultimately, what we see in Jesus, the ultimate righteous sufferer, is how compassionate and merciful God is to us. That in the midst of our suffering, God is not indifferent. This word compassionate, it's not the normal word for compassionate. In fact, this word for compassionate is only used here in the Bible. And it means something like very, very, very pitiful. Very, very merciful. Very, very full of compassion. Do you know why it's used nowhere else? I think James made it up. He made it up because he was trying to capture for us just how inclined God's heart is toward his people in their pain and suffering. We know that because of Jesus. You know, I got to be honest, family. People come to me because they have questions and they're suffering. And here's what I experience all the time as a pastor. People come to me and they're suffering worse than I've ever suffered. And it doesn't make sense. And then they come to me. And I'm like, you should find a professional to deal with this. I mean, honestly, like, I, you know, Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? I don't, I can't put that together. And, and it's not just that I can't make sense of why this is happening. It's that I've never experienced anything like that. Here's the good news. As, as Christians, we worship a God who has experienced what we've experienced. Peter Kreft, the, the Christian philosopher, he was talking to someone one time and he said, you know, God fixing suffering Eventually, that doesn't put God off the hook for my suffering. God's still not off the hook for what I've lived through. 
And he asked a great question. He said, well, what if God put himself on the hook of your suffering and knows exactly what it's like from the inside? Because that's the truth of the Christian message. We serve a God who is not only so great and infinitely powerful that he can have reasons beyond our comprehension, but he's a God who is so very, very, very gentle and lowly that he would take on our skin when he didn't have to and experience what pain abandoned in unrighteous suffering is like from the inside. And here's what it means for you, family. Today, when you pray to God... He has human hands and feet and a body that has been tormented and tortured and knows exactly what it's like to suffer. And so when you pray to Jesus, do you know what he can say to you and you could never object to? He says, I know what that's like. Because he went all the way to the bottom of your suffering and under it to deliver you from it. And so in life, there are two alternatives, and these are the only alternatives. Everyone's going to suffer. Everyone is going to suffer. And everyone is going to suffer for reasons they can't understand on this side of eternity. Everyone. So you can either face that without Jesus or with Jesus. Those are the only options. All of you are going to suffer some in unimaginably terrible ways, and I would rather face it with a God who loved me enough to suffer unimaginably in the skin of Jesus, and that kind of God is the only God I can trust to carry me through whatever I'm going through and to know, you know what, I don't have the best answer to the problem of evil yet because the problem of evil hasn't been answered yet. That answer is coming when Jesus returns, but who Jesus is shows me I can never say he is indifferent toward me in the midst of my pain and suffering, and you either. And that will help you to wait. Family, the end of the story hasn't been written. You realize that? It's, in, it's over in God's mind. We haven't seen it. So wait, wait. It's worth the wait. And God's already proved how committed he is to seeing us through to the end. Let's pray. So God, help us to do that thing that is most unnatural for me, and us, and it's learning to wait well. Lord, help us to have the right finish line for evaluating our lives. Lord, and help us to learn, even in the midst of grief and pain, to rejoice in you and to know uh, that we worship a God who has forever taken on our flesh. And Lord, what a astonishing truth that we will appear before you and see a human face and someone who was so committed to being with us that he became one of us forever. Jesus, we can question your plan. We cannot question your commitment to us. We've seen it on the cross. Help us to look there and take refuge until the day when our questions are answered, when everything sad comes untrue. Pray it in your name, amen.